Hi again. We're back reading the Parker Inheritance, and we're on Chapter 9 today. Anange, Washington. March 16, 1914. Brandon Jones was 11 years old. He had only referred to his race in two ways, as African-American and Black. Terms that had become popular after the civil rights movement of 1950s and the 1960s. Anant Washington was born almost 100 years before Brandon in a small wooden shack outside of Lulling, Texas. He lived during the Jim Crow era when black men were considered free but were banned from voting in elections, living where they wanted, or getting the same education or services as whites. Anant was colored. Colored was not a derogatory term, certainly not at the turn of the 20th century. However, there were many other offensive racist names at Anange, and he was only six when he heard his first one. Anange and his family had been at breakfast when they'd heard the stomping of hooves approaching the house. It was barely light outside, but the spring humidity had already seeped into their shack, laying down their clothes. Y'all stay here, Anange's father said, standing from the table. He walked to the door but didn't open it. The horse came to a stop, and a few moments later, Anange heard the crunch of footsteps against the ground. Something banged on the door, making Anange jump. Raymond, come on out here, boy. His father cast a look back at the table, then opened the door. Morning, Cordell, he said, stepping outside. No one at the table made a sound. Anange's mother stared at her plate, mouthing a prayer to herself. Anange's siblings stared silent glancing with one another. They were all older. Anange didn't understand what was happening, but they did. After a couple of minutes, Anange's father came back inside. It's Cordell Rackley. He's come to collect me and the boys. We're working at Mr. Tidwell's fields for a few weeks. Anange began to stand, but his father shook his head. You stay here. Help your mama and Winnie while we're gone. His mother finally looked up. What about our crop? If we don't start planting soon, the cotton won't have time to grow. Hush, Mary, his father said in a low voice. And what about the Logan, she continued, the Roswells? Or is Mr. Tidwell only forcing colored folk to work his land? That man's going to make us his slaves one way or another. Enough, his father snapped. We got a debt to pay, Mr. Tidwell. Chose now to collect. That's that. He clamped his hands. Boys, let's go. Anonch watched as his brothers quickly finished their breakfast. They kissed their mother on the cheek, then headed out the door. You're missing one, the man outside said, his voice booming. He must have been standing by the window. Where's the tar baby? Anonch froze. He was darker than all of his siblings. His skin was like moist soil that had been turned, like swirling ash rising from a fire. Go on, his mother said, squeezing his hand. Best not to keep Cordell Rackley waiting. Nodding, Anonch rose from the table. He minded, or he reminded himself to stand tall, just like his father had done a few minutes ago. He walked outside, then paused upon seeing the man standing in front of his father and brothers. Cordell Rackley was small and wiry with skin the color of biscuits that had been cooked for just a minute too long. Cordell Rackley was colored too. Ah. There he is, Mr. Rackley said, a shotgun resting on his shoulder. He motioned for Anonch to approach him. Cordell circled the boy, sizing him up like he was an animal or a cut of meat, still holding his gun. He squeezed both of Anonch's arms with his free golden brown hand, then slapped the boy on the back so hard that Anonch stumbled forward. 
What you doing, keeping a big buck like that inside? Cordell finally asked his father. With him, you'll work off your debt even faster. He's only six, his father said. He had balled his hands into fists, and he was looking at the ground, not at an inch. Doesn't matter, the man replied. He spit into the ground, then wiped his mouth. He's going to end up in the field. Might as well get started now. Chapter 10 It took two days, but Brandon was finally able to reach Miss Patrice McMillan, her sister's AP history teacher and the unofficial curator of the Perkins Memorial Room. She was headed out of town, but was available to meet with them that Friday morning. The only problem? No adults were around to drive them. Candace even tried texting her dad, who was coming into town for a visit, but he wouldn't arrive until the afternoon. So with the help of bike Candace found in her shed and some extra conjoling of Brandon, they had ridden over to Lambert High School. Brandon pulled out his sister's phone once they locked up their bikes. Hi, Miss McMillan. We're outside. He paused and nodded. Okay, see you in a second. He opened the door. She says to follow the sign and they'll lead us right to her. They entered a large aquarium at least two stories high. The ceiling was painted like the sky, light blue with clouds and birds and even a hot air balloon. Tori says they paint it over it each year to keep it looking new, Brandon said. The sky makes the room seem bigger than it really is. They walk down a series of intersecting hallways. As they proceed, the light automatically flickers on ahead of them. Finally, they stop at the open door. Hello, he called into the room. Come on in, a voice replied. They stepped inside. Candace had been expecting a room with a few statues or maybe a bookcase with a handful of photos and trophies. But the Perkins Memorial Room was a museum. Photos, paintings, and artwork lined each of the walls. Books and other artifacts sat behind glass with special lights illuminating them. The wall directly ahead of them displayed rows of black and white and color portraits. Wow, Candace said, you sound like I did when I first saw the room. A thin woman emerged from behind a large box. I'm Patrice McMillan. Welcome to the Perkins Memorial Room. She was younger than Candace's mother with dark skin and short, stylish bob and wore a pair of stretchy jeans and a Carolina Panthers jersey. She waved toward the wall that Candace was staring at. Those were all of the school's principals. Candace checked out the first photo in the row. White men were principals of the school, she asked. I assume since it was a school for the black kids. Don't forget, hon, back in 1868, there weren't a lot of educated African-Americans in South Carolina. It's hard to teach unless you've been taught yourself first. The high school is that old, Candace asked. It started as a one-room school for freed slaves founded by Methodists from the north, Miss McMillan pointed to another portrait farther along the wall. It didn't become a high school until the early 1900s. Ida Marie Perkins was the first black teacher, then principal. When she passed, they renamed the school after her. Brandon squinted at the photo of Perkins. She doesn't look black. Technically, she was mixed. Based on the little we could find, we think she was French descent on her mother's side. Not that it mattered. Back then, if you had one drop of black blood, you were considered colored. She rubbed her hands together. As interesting as it may be, we have limited time and you came here to do specific research. What can I help you with? We're looking for information about Anonch Washington, Candace said. He was a teacher at Perkins a long time ago. That name doesn't sound familiar, she said. Do you know when he taught here? The 50s, we think. 
stepdad. His wife was named Leanne, and they had a daughter named Siobhan. He was forced out of town. Miss McMillan cocked her head to the side. Tell me his name again. Anonch Washington, Candace said. They used to call him Big Dub. I've heard a few locals talk about him, but they never used his given name, she sighed. Just to be clear, the memorial doesn't have any information about the game. Candace and Brandon looked at each other. Brandon shrugged. So did Candace. You have heard about the big tennis expedition, Miss McMillan asked. We have no idea what you're talking about, Candace said. Miss McMillan hesitated for a moment. According to secondhand sources, in 1957, the tennis team from Perkins and Wallace, the school for white kids, held a private match. The Perkins boys beat the Wallace team pretty badly. The next day, Big Dub and his family left town. Some say he was run out. Others say he left on his own accord. Was Marion Allen on the Wallace team? Candace asked. No, he was in his late 20s then, she said. Plus, he wore an eye patch which I'm assuming would have made playing tennis difficult, but his younger brother, Glenn, was a member of the team. Isn't there anything written about the game? Brandon asked. It had to have been a big deal, a black and white school playing tennis against one another. Back then, I'm sure it would have been a very big deal if it had been a real sanctioned game, but they supposedly played in the middle of the night at one of the high school courses. She began walking. I want to show you something. She led them to the sports area. A large shelf took up most of the wall with various trophies, championship plates, and photos enshrined behind glass. Above the shelf hung a number of paintings. One series of five paintings showed a tennis game between blacks and white players, where each painting displayed a different score, from 0-0 to 40-15. Other artwork showed additional sports, a football player playing a scoring a touchdown, a baseball player swinging a bat, and a sprinter handing off a baton to a teammate. That art is worth more than every laptop in the computer lab. It was commissioned specifically for us. Personally, I think our donor wasted his money. She pointed to the shelf. See that trophy down there? Brandon knelt in front of the glass. It says, he jerked back, it's the trophy from the game. Perkins Wallace Tennis Expedition, August 10th, 1957. Champions. Miss McMillan tapped the glass. My predecessor came in one morning to find the trophy sitting on her desk. It seemed like someone had gone to a lot of effort to have it made, so she added it to the display. We included a photo of the tennis team from the 1957 yearbook, though we have no idea who played that night. Candace thought back to the first clue in the letter. This was all interesting, but it wasn't giving them the information they needed. Did Coach Washington have any hobbies? Any other sports besides tennis that he liked just as much? Miss McMillan frowned, and for a moment, Candace worried she'd said too much, that somehow Miss McMillan knew all about her grandmother's letter and the hidden treasure. Then her eyes lit up. You know, when I was looking through some old files a few years ago, I saw a case of DVDs with his name on them. Give me a second. Maybe those have some additional information about him. As Miss McMillan walked away, Candace looked at the trophy again. She took off her backpack and pulled out the letter. August 10th. 2007, she said. The letter was dated exactly 50 years after the tennis game. No way, that can't be a coincidence. Brandon pulled out his notepad. Can you read off the inscription? 
Candace knelt to get closer to the trophy. She read the inscription for Brandon, then slid over to get a better look at the photo of the tennis team. It didn't take much for her to figure out who Big Dub was, since he towered over everyone else. A tall girl stood in the photo as well. Candace wondered if she was Siobhan. Miss McMillan returned with a DVD case. I took a quick peek. It looks like someone made tribute videos for a number of past coaches. The videos are short, only 10 or 15 minutes long each. Candace rose and took the DVD from Miss McMillan. Is that Siobhan Washington in the photo? She said the name slowly to be certain she was pronouncing it correctly. I'm not sure, Miss McMillan said, but the players' names are listed in the yearbook. I'll grab one for you. Brandon made another note on his pad. How much do you want to bet that our mysterious benefactor is behind the trophy as well? He said to Candace. Miss McMillan had begun to walk away, but stopped. A mysterious what? She's asked. He smiled sheepishly. Oh, nothing. It's what we've been calling the guy who made all of these anonymous donations to the city. You know, for the library and memorial? Candace glared at Brandon. Shut up, she tried to say with her eyes. Our benefactor is an, or isn't anonymous. His name was James Parker. Candace's head whipped toward Miss McMillan. I thought, we thought, as I understand it, he was never trying to hide who he was. He just didn't want to draw attention to himself. He made most of his contributions to his charitable funds. There's even a plaque with his name on it, Miss McMillan said, pointing toward a far wall. Was he at the game that night, Candace asked? I doubt it. Mr. Parker was from Colorado. She glanced at her watch. I'm sure this was just some big tax write-off for him. What was the name of Brandon asked? To a fresh page in his notebook. James Parker, he said. Kids, I hate to run you out, but I've got to get moving. I'm supposed to be on my way to Atlanta right now. I'll be back Monday if y'all want to swing by. Just give me a call ahead of time. Candace barely heard the rest of what Miss McMillan said. Her head was stuck on one word, Atlanta. If you don't mind, can we still borrow a yearbook? Brandon asked. Sure thing. Just bring it back in good condition. She stared at, or she started to walk away again. Candace stepped forward. Where are you going? She asked quietly. To get a yearbook. No, I mean in Atlanta. Where are you going in Atlanta? I live there. Her stomach flip-flopped as she talked. My sorority sister invited me to visit. We'll probably go to the cookout, maybe a movie. She's a diehard Braves fan. But I'm not about to let her drag me to a game. Oh, okay, Candace said. Then she forced a smile and added, sounds like fun. As Mrs. McMill- or as Miss McMillan disappeared through a door at the rear of the room, Candace wondered what had happened to her throwback Hank Aaron's jersey she always wore to baseball games. She had outgrown it last summer, but her father had promised to buy her a new one this year. She considered reminding him about the jersey when she saw him that afternoon, then decided against it. It wasn't like she needed it anyway, especially not here at Lambert. Miss McMillan returned a few moments later with a yearbook. She handed it to Brandon. Anything else I can help you all with? One more question. Do you have any contact information for James Parker? Afraid not, hon, Miss McMillan said. James Parker has been missing for more than 10 years. That's the end of this chapter. We'll see you tomorrow for chapter 11 and 12.